All right. We're going to dive into our text this morning, but let's, uh, let's just pray real quick. Uh, Father God, we, we thank you that we can come to your word, and, and God, that you speak to us here. It, even that we would be in Ezra and Nehemiah at this time, we would never choose to preach out of this. But as we've gone through our lectionary, God, you brought us to a text that is, has been really illuminating, at least for me, uh, during this Lenten season and during this, this strange season in our lives. And so we just thank you and trust that you can speak to us through your word this morning. Give us hearts that are ready to receive. Give us, ear, give us ears that can listen. In the name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir again, but you guys are all on, on camera, so that's, that's good. We'll, uh, we'll do this. Um, we've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah, and we are wrapping it up this morning. And like I said, it's not a, not a text that we would have looked at and say, hey, let's do Ezra and Nehemiah. It's kind of one of those that you often will pass over or talk about when you want to talk about like leadership because Nehemiah is held up as this great leader example. Um, but we're, we're in it, and we've, it's been really illuminating for me. Uh, just a reminder that Ezra and Nehemiah originally would have been seen as one text. They would have been on a scroll. We've, we've separated them because of the, the, the names of the leaders who are involved there, and, and they've got a little bit of different stories, but they're actually meant to all kind of go together. And uh, we're going to wrap it up this morning, but I just want to really quickly kind of give an overview of what we've been talking about. Um, and just a reminder that this, this collection in Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of a study in best laid plans. Uh, we, we see that they have all these great ideas as the, the people have gone into exile and they're returning to the land and, and they're supposed to be doing all these things there and they've got a lot of plans for how they're going to do it. Um, and they're good things they want to do. But again and again, things don't go so well. And Jeff touched on this a few weeks ago, but the book starts with this, uh, an activated hope. Right? The, the Jewish people have this hope that they're going to get to return to the land and they're going to be able to, to be the people of God in, in the way they were in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, and to have the temple and to have the city and to be everything they were supposed to be. And, and Jeremiah tells them, hey, you're going to be in exile for 70 years, but then you get to return. And we see at the very beginning in Ezra 1 1, uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh spoken by Jeremiah, Yahweh moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And it goes on to just say, God's told me to send you guys back. You guys can go back and build the temple. And so for, for an Israelite hearing this, that, that awakens this, this hope that, oh, we, we can go back. And maybe we can be the people God has called us to be. And, and beyond that, there are other prophecies about, about us being a light to the nations, about a Davidic king coming to rule forever and ever. Is that finally going to happen? Is this, is this the time? And so there's activated hope for those people. And for, for an Israelite reader reading Ezra and Nehemiah, that's where their head is now. Okay, is, is this going to be it? Are we going to see the fulfillment? And then we enter what we've been calling the return and rebuild cycle that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. In the first portion, Ezra 1 through 6, we've seen them return. And Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua and a few others are, are going about building the temple, trying to get God's, the, the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. And, and they face some opposition. They make some difficult choices. Um, and in the end, it's kind of anticlimactic. They build the temple and, well... It's there, but it doesn't have the glory that, that the former temple had, and, and that's kind of the end of that chapter. And then we enter an, another phase of the return and rebuild cycle. Ezra comes, and he, he comes to, to teach the people the Torah, to, to build this Torah community, this, this people who are centered around God's teaching and, and the, the, 
the goals he has for them as a people, the life he wants them to live. So he comes to teach them, and again, there's opposition, there's difficulties. They, they learn that people have been intermarrying, and they make some difficult decisions and end up deciding to divorce and send away the women and children. And the chapter just ends with the big, ugh, was that good? Was it right? Was it wrong? And it doesn't give any commentary. We're just sitting there with kind of a bad taste in our mouths. And then we get to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he, he hears that the wall is, is not rebuilt around Jerusalem. It's laying in ruin. And so he, he prays. He, he goes to the king. He asks. He comes. And he's rebuilding this wall. And there's opposition. People want to keep them from having that wall so that Jerusalem is this, this strong place. And they get weapons in one hand. And they're building with the other hand. He's a great leader. They do all this stuff. But then we're kind of left not knowing. Was it, are we there now? Have we made it? And we paused last week and saw they kind of had a, a revival meeting. The Israelites, they got together, they, they listened to the word, they, they came together and said, God, we've sinned, and, and they've made these oaths of how they're going to live better, and, and we know that those oaths don't always mean very much. But then we get to our text this morning, and, and we have to ask ourselves, do we, do we have a happy ending? Is that where things are? In chapter 12, and I'm not going to read chapter 12 to you, we'll read chapter 13, but chapter 12 has kind of a cool scene. It's the dedication of the wall. And, and what they do is, he, Nehemiah gets these, these two choirs and sets them up on the wall, and they're walking in opposite directions all the way around the city singing these songs. And they meet at the gates by the temple. And they go into the temple and they're singing, so it's this really beautiful dedication. Everyone's excited. And then, in verse 33, 43, it says, On that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Joy, joy, joy. You hear that? There's so much joy. And we say, okay, if that's the ending of this book, how did it go? If it ends there, we'd say, okay, it worked out. I mean, it was, it was hard. It was touch and go. Uh, but, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, we got through it. We pulled up, pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, and, and we did it. And we were able to make it. But the book doesn't end there. <laughs> a lot of times we like to talk about Ezra and Nehemiah, and we stop there. We don't, we don't go further. But there's more. You know, the rest of chapter 12 details how they got the storerooms and the temple all set up so that the Levites could be taken care of. When people gave their tithes, the Levites don't have to go work the land. They're going to be working in the temple. And so there's enough for them that's all taken care of. They've got choirs that are going to be singing all the time in the temple, which is a really cool concept to think of, right? They're just there singing all the time, worshiping God, and they're being taken care of. It's all set up. But then we get to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is where things fall apart, as they so often do. Right? I mean, this is, this is the thing about, about life, is that we, we don't, chapters don't end. I mean, something ends, but then we keep on going, and there's always aftermath. There's, there's things that happen afterwards, and this is where we are in chapter 13 in Nehemiah. And so what I'm going to do is I'll read a little bit of text, and I'll stop and, and talk about that a little bit, and then we'll just we'll get through the text together. But uh, we'll start in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, On that day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they hadn't met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. And the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. We'll pause right there real quick. I, I just, we need to point out that 
that the Israelites are reading this and making their own interpretations, which we all do. We all make interpretations when we read. But the text in question, it's in Deuteronomy, and what it says is no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted up to ten generations. And they, they say ever. Now that's, that's a legitimate reading because ten generations is a long time, and it's a way to say figuratively forever. So they, they can make that reading, but, but also we can look at the text and see that, you know, there are times when genealogies will put someone back ten generations to show you that this was an okay relationship, that it has cleared ten generations. And, and we even see, when we talk about a Moabite entering the assembly, who, who is uh, David's great-grandmother? It's, it's Ruth, the Moabitess. She comes and she enters the people of God. She becomes part of the assembly. And, and she's the great-grandmother of the greatest king in Israel history. So to say that, that these people could never become a part of the people of God is just wrong. And then they go a step further and say when they heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Again, not just Moab, Moabites, Ammonites, all from a descent. Which if you go back to that passage in Deuteronomy, it, it doesn't say that about other people groups. And so they're making their own reading here. But then we, we go on to read, it says, Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. Now he was closely associated with Tobiah, who we, we read about earlier in this book. He was one of the ones opposing the building of the wall. He's a Moabite. Right? He was closely associated with Tobiah. And he had provided him with a large room, formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles. And also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. But while all this was going on, I wasn't in Jerusalem, Nehemiah says. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all, all his household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put, them, put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. But I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites hadn't been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service, they'd gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new I owned the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan son of Zakur, the son of Madaniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and don't blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. We hear about all this strange stuff going on. Elisha the priest has basically emptied out a storeroom. To, for like this little Airbnb for Tobiah, right? Whenever he's in town, whenever he's in Jerusalem, he can just hang out in this room in the house of God when no Moabites ever supposed to be there. And so Nehemiah hears about this. He kicks him out, right? He takes care of all of this. But then we find out that the portions that are supposed to be going to the Levites and the singers so that this worship can continue happening in the house of God, it hasn't been taken care of. They've gone by the wayside. And, you know, if you just flip back a page or two in your Bible. You can see the oath the people made when they had their big revival. They said, hey, we're not going to neglect doing this. And they've neglected it. And, and really what, we're, what we see, it's right here in the text, but as things are falling apart, we see that the house of God is neglected. Right? This is, this is 
part number one of the return and rebuild cycle. They're going to return and they're going to build the temple. They're going to rebuild this house of God and it's being neglected. They have all these grand ideas. They make all of these big promises. But when they start going through the day-to-day life, the house of, the house of God is neglected. And keep on going. It says, in those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchants selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Well, he says it right there. What's happening in this section? We've already seen the house of God neglected, and now we're seeing the Sabbath is desecrated. And so this this Torah community that Ezra has come to, to build up, are they living out the Torah? Are they living out the commands of God? No. They're treading the, the grapes. They're, they're loading, taking up these loads, and they're going to sell them in the city. They're, they're buying from all these different merchants. Uh, men from Tyre are, are selling their things. And so the Sabbath is being desecrated. The Torah community seems non-existent. And he goes on. It says, When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. These guys, instead of enjoying the Sabbath, are now having to guard the gates. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time, from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, oh my God. And mercy to me according to your great love. I think this little aside is so important because we see that not only the house of God is neglected, the, the Sabbath is desecrated, but the, the wall that Nehemiah has come to build is trivialized. Right? What do you build a wall for? To protect yourself against these big armies. And, and he is trying to protect the Sabbath by making the guards and Levites come and guard the wall on the Sabbath from merchants, people who just want to sell stuff. And he's having to stand at the wall and uh, on the Sabbath yell threats at them, that he's going to lay hands on them, right? This is not what Nehemiah envisioned when he said, I'm going to go build this great wall to protect them from merchants. And, and the irony is if they had a Torah community of people who were living by the Torah, they wouldn't have to worry about anyone coming and trying to sell stuff because no one's going to buy it. And, and the people themselves won't be going and getting caught up in that. But because the house of God's been neglected, because they're desecrating the Sabbath, they don't have a Torah community, now the wall is being trivialized, turned into this thing just to keep merchants out. Things are falling apart. And, and we see it most clearly, most clearly in this next section. In verse 23, it says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. The same old problem of intermarriage. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, and they didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. And I said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. 
Wasn't it because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness, or are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanbalat, the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O oh my God. And that's where it ends. That's the end of the book. I mean, anticlimactic, right? But what we see is, amongst all these things that have been neglected and desecrated and trivialized, we also see that the leader is lost. Nehemiah, who is not a bad guy. Like, if, we, if you've been reading through the lectionary, I hope you have, but you've been seeing, he's done some good things. And this guy hears about Jerusalem and ruins, and he's devastated, and he, he prays, he fasts, he goes, and with, with courage and bravery, goes and seeks an audience with the king and tells him what's going on, and, and he... he organizes to have this, this wall built amidst opposition. Uh, he's taking care of the poor. He's doing a lot of things. But I think we can all agree that this is, this is a failure on Nehemiah's part. He gets to a point where he sees people doing something he feels is wrong, and he is rebuking them and calling curses down on them. He's beating some of the men and pulling out their hair. And, and he's making them take an oath. Have, have you, someone ever made you take an oath? Like, did you mean it? It's like when your parents made you say, apologize to someone. Like, those were like the most heartfelt apologies, right? You really meant that. My kids are laughing at home because I've, I've done that. And so they, <laughs> they see the hypocrisy. But, um, yeah, this is what Nehemiah is doing, right? I mean, he, he's at his wit's end, and, and he's lost, and so this is the anticlimactic ending to Ezra and Nehemiah. And if I just close it up right there, that would be a real bummer of a sermon. <laughs> but I think that this book has a lot that it's trying to teach us, a lot that it's trying to show us here. And so we need to take a few moments to see what exile teaches us. Because make no mistake, these people are still in exile. They've returned to the land, but but they don't have the temple and they don't have this community that they can draw upon and, and they're not even protected by this wall really and, and it, it doesn't seem to make sense because they had looked forward to this coming back in the land. It was all going to be okay but they're still under the rule of another king and, and their hearts are still going after other things than God. And I think we need to hear this message too because we also live in exile. You know, even as we follow Jesus, we, we wake up in a world where we are reminded again and again that we are not completely and wholly within the kingdom of God. We, we see death, we see sin, we, we see brokenness, we see loneliness, and we don't just see it, we experience it daily. And it can make us feel distant and far from God. And... and the question for us as we try to follow Jesus is, is what does it look like for us to live in this world striving to follow Jesus? And I think there are a few things this book teaches us. And, and the first is this. And this is 
so crucial. And, and I think we know this, but we need to be reminded again and again is that people and projects will fail. People and projects will fail. Nehemiah has hung so much upon these projects, upon these things happening. If we can just get this temple built, if we can just get this community around the Torah, if we can have a wall, then it'll all be okay. And I think he gets to a point where he sees that it's not, that it didn't work. And he's devastated. See, we have all these plans that, that we think if we put them in, into place, if we can follow this person or do this thing, this, this, this program, this ministry, then it's all going to work out. We can get disappointed. I have a, a poem I want to share with you. Um, that, that point earlier about best laid plans is a line you might have noticed, uh, recognized from a Robert Burns poem. Uh, it's called To a Mouse. And it's in the final two stanzas. Um, you've heard the best laid plans of mice and men often go askew or go awry. Uh, but we're going to, I've actually got a recording because um, uh, Robert Burns was Scottish. And so I asked Alicia Murphy if she would, if she would uh, record it. So she's, we're going to play that right now and, and hear her reading of the final two stanzas. of two. Oh, really, really quick, the context. Uh, Robert Burns has been plowing a field and he accidentally upturned a mouse's nest. Uh, and he's realized, oh, it's going to be really rough for him. He's just going to die because it's winter. Winter's coming, and this guy doesn't have a chance. And so he's, he's mourning with that mouse. But, but here's, here's the poem. But mousy, thou art no alone. Improving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glee. And layest not but grief and pain for promised joy. Still, thou art blessed compared with me, the present only toucheth thee. But, ach, I backward cast my ee on prospects drear, and forward, though I canny see, I guess and fear. Yeah, thanks for recording that for us, Alicia. Um, I, I wanted to share that poem with you because I, I think it touches on this point in a very real way for us, especially in the current context we're in. Um, you know, we have these schemes, we have these plans, and they gang after ugly, often go awry. And, and it leaves us with, with uh, grief and pain where we thought there would be joy, just like these people had joy, and then at the very end, they're left with just despair. And, and the poet touches on something important here. The difference between the beast and man is that, you know, that this mouse, he's only touched by the present, this this. One moment is all that's worrying him. It's worse for us because we also, we have regrets about the past. And we also look to the future and we're worried about that. So it's not just the present. We, we are this mess of, of regret and fear. And even though we can't see, we're looking forward and we're guessing and we're fearing. And how much does that speak to the moment that we're in right now? Uh, a moment with a lot of confusion and a lot that we just don't know. A lot of uncertainty. And the temptation for us is to put our trust in a person or in a project. If only this will happen. If I can look forward to this, then everything will be okay. And what we need to hear is that people and projects will fail us. And I believe that if we put our trust in something to get us through this, we are going to end up like Nehemiah, pulling out people's hair, or at least our own. And what we need to see is that depending on where we put our trust, depending on our, where our faith is, these difficulties that we encounter, they can sharpen or shatter us. 
right? Nehemiah, Nehemiah has put his faith in this project, has put his faith in, in this wall and this Torah community and, and this temple. And if we can just do this, maybe we can bring about the kingdom of God and it doesn't come to fruition and it shatters him. I mean, with the same hands that he is purifying the priests and the Levites, he is pulling out people's hair. This is not the Nehemiah that we, we met at the beginning of the book. But we can look at another example, someone like, like Daniel, who's also in exile. He's taken to Babylon, and then he's serving the king of Persia, and, and, and he knows Jeremiah's prophecy. He says, hey, God, is this it? It's been about 70 years. Are we, are we going to go back? Is this happening? And, and he, he's told, no, it's, it's going to be more like 70 times 7, <laughs> right? And, and so Daniel, in, in trust and faith, he continues to serve God in the midst of his exile, where he is. And, and if that means going into a lion's den, he does that, not because he's some awesome guy, but because he's put his faith in God. He's trusted God to be faithful, and God shows up. And he continues to serve in the midst of his exile. These difficulties that we experience, that they can shatter us, they can bring us to a breaking point because we thought something was going to happen, or they can sharpen us, they can strengthen us as we simply wait and trust God and look for him to show up. So does this mean we do nothing? <laughs> what do we do? Are we supposed to go and build a wall? Are we supposed to just sit back and, and not do anything? I, I think what we're supposed to do, I think what this text is encouraging us to do, believe it or not, is look for Jesus. I think this, this text challenges us to look for Jesus and, and in unique ways. I want to, if you've got your Bible in front of you, it, it's really clear to see it. I've got it up on the screen here. Um, I've got the end of Second Chronicles and the very beginning of Ezra up on the screen. It's probably small text, but uh, Second Chronicles would tr- traditionally have ended the Old Testament. Jews had it as First and Second Chronicles were at the very end. And it was this kind of recap of the whole story of the Jewish people. Starting at the very beginning of First Chronicles 1, Adam, A, all the way to chapter 36, Zedekiah, the last king, A to Z of Jewish history. And... <laughs> It's, it's ironic because it, it ended the Old Testament, but right here it's right in front of Ezra, which is helpful for us if you've got your Bible in front of you. You can see, and, and, and I won't go through reading all of it because you'll get bored because I'll read the same thing twice. What happens is Second Chronicles, which is written after Ezra and Nehemiah, says the exact same thing. It lifts the decree of Cyrus out of the beginning of Ezra. And maybe if you're reading along, you can see that. And I'll just, at the very end, I'll read what Second Chronicles has. It says, Yahweh of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people, may Yahweh their God be with them. Among you may go up. And it just cuts off. I keep on reading, and Ezra, it says, may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple. It keeps on going. There's more of the decree. But the chronicler just cuts it off. Why does he do that? I mean, did he not have the full transcript? No, I think, I think what he's doing, I think what he's trying to tell us is, hey, that thing that happened in Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm aware of that, but that wasn't it. That wasn't the return. We're still waiting. We're still waiting to actually come back to the land. We're still waiting for some, someone to come. We're still waiting for a temple to be built, for this Torah community, for, for a wall of protection around us. We're still waiting. And, and then the Old Testament ends. And then we're introduced to Jesus and the Gospels. 
And it's in Jesus. It's in Jesus that we're, we're told, the apostles tell us, Peter tells us, and Paul tells us in Ephesians, that we're, we're living stones that are being built up into a temple to be the house of God, that, that God now dwells within us through his Holy Spirit. Right? And then we're also told in Matthew, in, in chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And Romans, Romans 8, as we're talking about being this Torah community that's being built up in Jesus, we could spend a lot of time on this, but we'll just, chapter 8, verses 3, says, what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so, he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. We don't live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. He's saying, we now live in the spirit, and so the righteous requirements of the law are now met in us. We can be that Torah community. We can be that people with with circumcised hearts. We can now actually follow God because of his spirit within us. We can be who we're called to be and live that abundant life. And then we can look at the prophets and see Zechariah, who, who's having this vision of Jerusalem, having this vision of this, this city, and... and He's, he's asking about the wall, and he's being told, actually, there, there is no wall. How could there be? There's so many people, so many animals. I can't contain them. But, but Yahweh will be a wall around them. He'll be a wall of fire around them. And you only have to look to, to Nehemiah's own words. We talked about last week. He's telling people not to grieve, not to mourn, because the joy of Yahweh is their strength, is their refuge, is their, their fortress, their protection. And it just reminds me, in Hebrews, when we're told that for the joy, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. And it tells me this, this is where God finds his joy. This, this is his joy, is in being with us and for us. This is the God that we serve. Who, who builds us up into a temple, who, who makes us into a community that can experience his abundant life, and who is a wall of protection around us. And so, when I say that we need to look for Jesus, yeah, I mean in this text, and as we read, we can look to see what, what is this text telling us about Jesus and, and giving us wisdom on how to seek him. But, but more than that, I, I think just now in our, in our day-to-day, in our exile, as you're wandering about in the wilderness, where is Jesus? Look on the horizon. Look, look in the corners. Look, look on the edges and see where Jesus might be and where he might be calling you to follow and what it would look like to follow his lead. And, and, and I want to encourage you to do that because people and projects will fail. They will leave us dissatisfied, but Jesus we can put our full faith and trust in. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you. We thank you that though people fail, though our, our schemes go awry, God, you know that. And you are not surprised by that. God, that you hold us in the palm of your hand. That we can put our faith and our trust in you. And God, we just ask that even the difficulties of the cur- this current moment, God, that as we, as we trust you, that they would sharpen us, they would strengthen us, and it would grow our faith. God, we, we ask that when it feels like the things around us are falling apart, that's my text to remember, to, that's my message to remember to pray at 12 o'clock, so let's keep praying. 
When things around us are falling apart, we can put our hope in you. God, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful. Faithful to love us, faithful to care for us, faithful to provide for us. Helps to trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may have seen online how people are, uh, people are doing different scavenger hunts around town to, to occupy kids who are, are bored. And they'll put things in their windows like teddy bears or, or hearts. And kids are going on these scavenger hunts and, and looking for these things. And I want to encourage you during this season to be looking for Jesus. Everywhere you go, keeping an eye out, seeing, oh, could he be there? And, and how can I follow him in this moment and trust him to be there for me? I just want to end with the last part of uh, Psalm 100 that we read this morning. We're, we're, we're told to shout for joy to, to Yahweh, to, to worship Him. Why? For Yahweh is good, and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations, even now, with you. Go in peace. Amen.